1989, Ronald Reagan left a note for his successor in the White House, George H.W. Bush. It was a simple note written on Sandra Boynton stationery, which I find adorable. Who knows who Sandra Boynton is? If you have little ones in the house or grandkids, you need to buy all of her board books. Uh, But this started a tradition that has been continued by every outgoing president since. Now, other than Donald Trump's most recent note, all of them have been made public. You can read them. They've always been short, kind, often referencing the serious responsibility of the office of the president, and they usually contain some vague hope that the future will be brighter in the days ahead. They're more courteous than practical. For example, none of them contain, you know, the nuclear launch codes, and none of them say which of the 35 White House bathrooms is the nicest one. Uh, You know that some are nicer than others, but... They're mostly a gesture of camaraderie, despite the fact that in at least several instances, the recipient was a bitter political enemy. But still, when they are published, we are very fascinated to see them. We eagerly wonder, what did they say? What did that individual have to say to the next guy? Now, last week, in our studies through Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we began that section that contains seven letters from Jesus himself to specific churches and to anyone who has ears to hear. Though they are short, they are not just some traditional nicety from an outgoing politician. No, they are practical and critical. Each one is an essential message from a king who is coming back to rule and reign forever. We went through the letter to the church at Ephesus last time, and we discovered that something had gone very wrong there. They were in danger of losing the most vital thing, and so Jesus reached out to them to try to pull them back from the brink of spiritual disaster. I think it's fitting to go back and take a look at another letter that was written to the church during a time when it was operating in the love of God. This letter that we're going to look at was written about 30 years before the one in Revelation, and this time it was penned by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Paul was the one who had founded the church in Ephesus. And so I think it can be instructive as, you know, we look through these letters in Revelation, some of them, um, you know, like Ephesus has a corresponding epistle, Uh, you know, the others don't necessarily, but... We can go back and look and say, okay, if we were doing like a post-mortem on what was happening at the church in Ephesus, something had gone terribly wrong, was that a surprise to them? Were they, uh, you know, was it sprung upon them? Was it uh, something that they wouldn't have been able to predict? Or had they been given proper instruction? And of course, we know that they had. And so we're going to look at a little bit of that letter today. It had been around five years since Paul had been in town, and now he was a prisoner in Rome, writing this epistle in chains. Though he never expected to see his Ephesian friends again, he wanted to express that they were not forgotten by him, Paul, or forgotten by their Savior. They were still on the Lord's mind, and so the Holy Spirit prompted and inspired Paul to write them this wonderful letter. And like the letters we find in the Revelation, this one is written to us too. Though it was first delivered to a local congregation in Turkey, it's addressed to everyone who is in Christ. And so if you're a Christian here today, this letter is for you. The late Pastor Ray Stedman called Ephesians a letter about how to handle life as it is. 
Of course, for a Christian, handling life doesn't mean just getting through life, but growing through life as we progress in what the Bible calls sanctification. The Bible explains that God began a work in us as Christians and that he continues a work and one day he will complete that work. That work is called sanctification. It's a process by which God accomplishes great transforming things in us and through us, where we are more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. By the time Revelation chapter 2 was written, the Ephesian church had gone off course. But years before, when they were still in love with the Lord, Paul had some concerns that he wanted to address for them. And as he taught, he shared a prayer, one of his own personal prayers. He he shared with them in a moment of personal tenderness. And it was a prayer to God on their behalf that they would enjoy abundant spiritual lives that were full of power, full of satisfaction, full of growth in the Lord. Now we want that, right? Don't we? Wouldn't we want the Apostle Paul, you know, to be praying that for us as well? Don't we want to lay hold of that kind of fullness? Of course we do. Well, Paul knows the way. And he explains it to us. And we're going to begin our section in, chapter, in verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Hold there for a moment. In the opening of the letter, Paul overflowed with excitement about all the blessings that God's people receive through his grace. He describes how God's eternal plan has been to enrich us by his love and take away our sin and reveal mysteries to us and bring everything together in Christ. And all of these great things that God wants to do and has promised to do are not simply things that he would like to do if he ever finds the time. You know, sometimes in our culture, we talk about a bucket list. And a lot of times those are things that, well, in a perfect world, if I had enough resources and enough time and enough things cleared up, it would be really great if I could X, Y, or Z. But that's not the way God looks at his work in your life or his plan for the church or for his people. They're not things he would just like to do if he can get around to it. No, these are things that he's actually doing right now. He planned it in eternity past. He put it into motion uh, starting from the very first moment of creation. And he is continuing it day by day, moment by moment in each one of our lives. We would say he's making payments on his purchase. It's not just something he'd like to buy one day. He's gone in and said, okay, I'm buying this. In fact, Paul said the sending of the Holy Spirit was the down payment for the inheritance of the church. Now, these great thoughts of God's amazing grace and his generosity and his work, these thoughts compelled Paul to pray. And specifically, he was going to pray that the Ephesian Christians would not miss out on any of what God had made available available to them and that they would understand it and that thereby they wouldn't wander around in confusion or take some detour out of the way. Now, obviously, it's possible for that to happen in the life of a church or in the life of a Christian. We know it because it happened in Ephesus 30 years later, where Jesus had to come to them and said, you guys have left your first love. You're not in love with me anymore. You're doing a lot of things. You say a lot of things. You busy yourself with a lot of things, but you don't love me anymore. And though Paul founded the church there, as I said, he hadn't been around in quite a few years. But as people would come and visit him or he would cross paths with people who had been through Ephesus, he would ask about the church there. How are they doing? He would inquire as to how things were going in their church and in their spiritual lives. And the reports that came in were really great at the time. 
First, we see here that they were full of faith. He says, man, you guys are full of faith. What does that mean? Well, in the Bible, faith means not only mentally accepting certain ideas, but it means when a person puts their trust in something. We might say where they hang the weight of their lives on something actively. It can be described in Bible dictionaries as the conviction of truth, the reliance on Christ for salvation, a pledge to follow him. Christian faith, thereby, is not simply a list of doctrines or ideas that you check off in your mind and certify as having passed some test. Maybe in your work or, you know, um, some area that you hang out in, you have to sign a waiver. Do you understand X, Y, and Z? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, then you're good to go. Or maybe in your job, you had to do some kind of safety training. I remember years ago when the high school campus was still open and students could go off campus for lunch, we opened up the cafe and a bunch of students would come over every day and we would feed them. It was kind of a cool ministry. Well, in order to do that legally, somebody had to be our food safety czar. That ended up being me. So what happened was I had to like take this class and then I had to take a test. And as long as I passed this test and, and answered the right answers a certain percentage of the right answers, they said, you're good to go. We don't really care if you do any of that stuff, but somebody knew you were supposed to, right? Well, faith isn't like that. And that's some of the trouble of some traditions, right? Where it's like, well, I was, I was confirmed in my faith. I, I went before somebody and I said X, Y, and Z, and thereby I'm good to go. But that's not what faith is in the Bible. It's not just a certification that, okay, you've passed the cosmic test and you're good to go. Rather, in the Bible, faith is something that is lived out. Paul said it's your faith. It's a personal thing. It leads to your life choices. Now, these Christians in Ephesus believed. And what a difference it made in them and the world. You want to see what kind of difference it made? Read the book of Acts and see what happens when the people in that book believed. And how their communities were changed and their lives were changed and whole industries that were wicked were shut down overnight. Those sorts of things. But what did they believe? It was faith in the Lord Jesus, Paul said here. You see, their faith wasn't just in God at large or in morality or justice or some of these catch-all terms that people try to use today. And the difference is key because if we don't have an external standard then man will fashion God's and morality and justice in his own image, right? No matter what, if you don't have your own standard, man has to worship something we're wired to worship. And if you don't have an external standard that you submit yourself to, well, then man goes out and he fashions God in his own image in a way that makes sense to him. He fashions morality and justice in his own image according to what makes sense to him in his time and in his culture. But Jesus Christ is different than any God ever conceived in the imagination of man. Now, if the Ephesians' faith was simply in moral goodness, you'll talk to people in your life, maybe family members or friends who say, and you try to talk to them about Jesus, and they say, hey, I'm a good person. Well, what does that mean? It means in some standard that they have created for themselves, they say, I'm generally better than I am worse according to my own standard. But that's a real problem because Human morality changes and shifts from time to time and place to place. No, their faith, the Ephesians' faith, was anchored in and built upon a real person who had been revealed by heaven, the man Christ Jesus. Now, if he is the standard by which we have to measure our faith, or if he is the bedrock upon which we build our faith, which he is, well, where do we find information about him? 
How do we learn about who this God-man is? Well, it's found in one place, the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. We're told that he is revealed in the volume of the book. That's what Jesus said. What he said, what he did, what he's like, what's his plan, all of these things are found on the pages of Scripture. The truth of Christ and the salvation found in him is not found by looking within at our own wicked hearts, nor at culture around us, nor even at our own human history, nor even in creation. You can't look up into the stars and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can look up into the stars and realize, oh man, there is a, there is a God who designed all of this. Uh, look at the fine-tuning of the universe and look at the, you know, uh, the, the perfection of the earth and the systems therein so that life can grow. And so you can understand that there is something outside of the world that created the world. But you can't look up into the stars and say, oh, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity and he came in his incarnation, the God-man, and he lived a sinless life and died and three days later rose again. Now, we ha- that has to be revealed to us in what we call special revelation, which is the word of God, the 66 books of the Bible. Now we're hanging here for a moment because this is really important. We're talking about meaning and purpose. We're talking about life and death. Our faith must find its source and supply in the truth of Christ. Not feelings, not culture, not human philosophies, but in revealed truth, the word of God. Think about it this way. How do you set a clock? Your power went out in the rainstorm last week, you know, and your, your oven's flashing at you 12, 12, 12. How do you set that clock? If you're like me, you do this. You reach in your pocket and you say, Steve Jobs, what time is it? Right? And then Steve Jobs tells you what time it is. And you set your clock according to that clock. If you want it to be right, you have to set it according to an external, correct, reliable standard. Who used to call popcorn? I remember being a kid, I loved to call popcorn and listen to that robot tell us what time it was. It was really fun. But look, we understand that we can't set our clocks on what we feel, what we think would be best for us. It would be best for me if it was not 9 a.m. right now, but if it was a different time. We don't set our clocks by polling our friends and neighbors and getting their opinion. Because we need to actually know what time it actually is. And so we let Apple tell us or whoever you have in your pocket. But how does Apple know what time it is? Well, they're using an accurate clock that is connected to this external standard. The most accurate timepiece in the world is actually a a grouping of timekeepers. I couldn't follow it. I'm not smart enough to figure out. But the most accurate timepiece in the world is found at the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. The master clock, it's called. And it's critical to the world's communications and financial and scientific infrastructure. Mundane parts of our daily lives like computer clocks, GPS, none of that would work if we didn't have the precise timekeeping services of the master clock. And so we can understand this as an analogy. Faith, for it to be effective and genuine, must be set to an impeccable, perfect standard. And that's Jesus Christ. Now, faith in Christ is going to lead to a life that's like Christ. When you set your clock according to the master clock, it's going to reflect the same time. That clock is going to be an imitation, a mimic of that external standard. That makes sense. And we see that, okay, if I'm going to put my life into Christ and become one of his people, right? It's a natural thing that we would start to become more like him. In fact, that's God's specific plan. He says, yeah, that's what I do. 
It doesn't only just happen on its own. I do that in your life. When you surrender to me and say, Lord, I'm yours, he says, great, I'm going to take you and make a masterpiece out of you. I'm going to smooth out your edges. I'm going to put you into a mold. I'm going to shape you and mold you and conform you into a specific image. And that image is Jesus Christ. And to live a life that imitates Christ means to be a person who loves. Because God is love. Now the Ephesians were. They were people who loved, at least at this point in time. Paul said, I've heard about your love for all the saints. Now, in the Bible, that word saint isn't some sort of fancy word. It's not a super, you know, spiritual Christian that a few attain to. In certain traditions, that's what saint means. But in the Bible, a saint is every believer in Christ. If you're a Christian, God considers you a saint. And if you're a Christian, we should consider you a saint. And you should consider every other Christian in here a saint and act accordingly. And saints love, as far as the Bible is concerned. So we find that Christianity is not simply an intellectual or a doctrinal thing, though it is full of doctrine. To be a Christian means to be a person motivated by and overflowing with the kind of love that God demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ, revealed on the pages of Scripture. And that love is not only revealed for us to try to copy. He says, okay, here's what Jesus said. Here's what he did. Here's the plan. Here's how this all works. And now I, God, in my incredible grace, am going to shed this broad. I'm going to shed this love, pour it into your hearts. That's what Romans 5 says. Pour it out on us so that we can then exercise it and enact it in our daily lives. Now, we might expect Paul to wrap up his letter right here, that Ephesians would be one of these one-chapter books in the New Testament, like Philemon or 3 John, and say, okay, you guys, you did it, you're full of faith, and you love everybody, so you've maxed out your Christ-likeness, way to go. But that's not the case at all. To Paul, this was the starting point of his conversation with the Ephesians. This was the starting of his letter. As far as he's concerned, now... Based off of their faith and love, they were ready for a greater depth and growth in the Lord. And so he says in verse 16, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. In Paul's mind, the Ephesians weren't just part of his spiritual portfolio. Sometimes you hear on the news, you know, there is a quarterly earnings report. Tesla missed its quarterly earnings projections, whatever that means, right? But that's not how Paul wasn't asking after the Ephesians say, how are they doing? Okay, they're doing good. Okay, let's move on to the next thing. They're just part of my spiritual investment portfolio. That's not it at all. To Paul, this, these were people who he loved. I mean, he had real care for them. He really wanted to know. He spent time thinking about them and praying for them. Specifically here, he was giving thanks for them. Giving thanks to God in prayer is a needful part of our prayer lives. It's all over the Bible, this idea. Especially if we look at the Psalms, right? And Psalms are full of, 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 of songs about thanksgiving and songs about prayer. And in the Psalms, we see it is particularly important for us to be thanking God as we talk to him, as we pray to him, especially when we gather together as a group of his people. That is just a big theme in the Psalms that we should be doing that. And so it's not just an Old Testament idea either. In Philippians 4, we're told that in every situation, present your request to God with thanksgiving. And so we just want to be the kind of people who, as we pray, and especially as we gather together to pray, like on Wednesday nights, Saturday nights, other times, we want to be sure that we are bringing just 
hearts of thanksgiving and words of thanksgiving to God for all of his grace and abundance toward us. Even when we're bringing our requests, we can do so with thanksgiving. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do in verse 17 as we get to his first request. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, we're only partway through the first chapter of this book, and already Paul has referenced God being our Father four times. He says so specifically three times, and the fourth time he talks about us being adopted into the family. And you know what? If we pause and think about it for a minute, what a difference it makes that God is our Father. This is such an important idea that, that God has revealed to us in the Bible, that his, He is our Father, and He has adopted us into His family. God is more than just a power. He's more than just the greatest monarch of all time. He's more than just the gatekeeper to the afterlife. He is your perfect heavenly father full of unfailing love towards you. Now for a moment, consider how hopeless and and futile prayer would be if God wasn't our father. Maybe this illustration will help us feel that out. Uh, About once a month, we put out the prayer cards, right? And we write out requests and different things that are going on because we're going to pray to, about those things to God our Father. Now imagine this month, instead of us putting out prayer cards, we put out notes to the President of the United States. We want everybody to put a request on there to the President of the United States and we're going to send it off to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Who's going to get a response? Not one, right? Not one. Or if you get a response, it's some kind of generic, stamped out, pre-printed response. Right? You don't get a response from the President of the United States. If we wrote to him and said, Mr. President, I'm in so much need of help. I'm so discouraged. I've got this issue going on in my family. I don't know what to do. You're not getting a response. Why? Because the President doesn't know you from Adam. He has no idea who you are. He doesn't know what Hanford is. Right? That's any President, by the way. That's not a commentary on our current President. Right? He's like, Hanford, is that the place in Washington where all the nuclear waste is? We're like, no, that's another Hanford. (laughs) You don't get a response. But if you write a note to your dad and you say, man, father, I've got this going on. A loving father responds very, very differently. And God says to us in the word, he says, you know what? I'm your loving father. And when he talks about how he views our prayers, here's one example. He said this in 2 Kings 20. He said, I have heard your prayers and I have seen your tears. God's not only willing to hear us when we pray, he's listening for us. In fact, he's actually much more attentive to us than we are to him. And that is mind-blowing. All of his love and his power and his ability are bent upon accomplishing his plan to adopt you and me into his family and fill us with his fullness and accomplish his gracious work on our behalf. That's what he's doing right now. That's what he's busying himself with right now. So Paul says, I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom. What does he mean here? And in some translations, that spirit is capitalized. And okay, so what is he saying? Well, he can't really mean that he's referring to the Holy Spirit himself because Paul had already established that they had been sealed already in the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit had already been given to them as a down payment and guarantee of God's promises. The term used here for spirit is described as a vital principle. It's described as breath to the body. Every component of your body needs breath, needs oxygen to do its thing from head to toe. 
And so Paul then gives us an image of wisdom, God's wisdom, permeating every aspect of our lives like oxygen in the body. Now, of course, in the Bible, wisdom doesn't just mean smarts or book learning or knowledge that you can catalog, right? It means God's wisdom, his truth being applied to our thoughts and our words and our choices and our decisions, our mentality, our worldview, all of those things. That's God's wisdom. It means taking what God has said and allowing that to give us a different but true perspective on reality. This is so important that God says to have his wisdom is better than having a warehouse full of gold and rubies. He said, if you had the option of a huge, the Amazon warehouse in Fresno being full of gold and rubies all for you, or the option of having God's wisdom in your life, you should absolutely every single time pick God's wisdom. It's of so much more value. In fact, the Bible says that nothing that you can desire can compare with God's wisdom. Well, great. How do I get it? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 7 that to hear God's word and do it is wisdom. That's how we do it. That's how we get it. We're back to the scriptures. We find that to know Jesus, we must discover him in the word of God. And along the way, we're going to find the riches of God's wisdom in the very same place. We're also told in Psalm 107, something very sweet. We're told that to be wise is to consider the steadfast love of the Lord. That's an amazing thing as well. A lot of times we think of wisdom, you know, I got to learn and I've got to study and I've got to do X, Y, and Z and all of this knowledge. And we end up thinking academically or we end up thinking about volume of information and material and all of that. And the Bible says, listen, if you just sit and think about how much God loves you, by doing that, God installs his heavenly wisdom into your life. That's an amazing thing. Now, Paul's second request here is that they receive the revelation in the knowledge of him, that these Ephesians would understand more about God as revealed by the words and life of Jesus Christ. During the election cycle, there was a lot of debate and speculation among Christians as to where Jesus would stand on certain policies. Did you see any articles like this? Jesus would be at this protest, but not that protest. Jesus would support this law or this legislation or this position, but not this one. And Christians were fighting about that and, uh, you know, getting hot button topics and arguing about them. But listen, John, the apostle whom Jesus loved in his first epistle made it very clear to us. The Christ has been revealed. What you need to know about Jesus has been revealed. His life has been described and detailed and declared. He has spoken at length and we are able to know him, not through cultural speculation, but by hearing his word, obeying him and allowing him to make his home in our hearts. Paul's hope was that they would have a greater and greater understanding of who God is and what that means for them. Not that they discover secret things that no one else had heard before. It wasn't that he said, hey, I'm going to let you in on the secret stuff. But he says, man, there is so much more to comprehend about God's love for you and God's plan for you and what God has accomplished for you and thereby wants to do through your life as you devote your mind and your heart to him, as you gaze upon him, As you fill your heart and your thoughts with thoughts of him and with his word. We kind of think about, sometimes in movies they'll have a real tight close-up, right? 
And then as, as the camera pulls back, that lens pull, pulls back, more information about what's happening fills the frame. And a lot of times movies will use this to reveal some great plot point or you know, change some, something that you thought about the movie and surprise you. And so Paul is saying, man, what, I, what I'm hoping is that, that you wouldn't stay having some sort of very small, narrow focus, but that as you grow in the Lord, that your understanding would just widen and widen and widen so that you understand more and more and more, not some secret that other people haven't heard before. That's what the cults do. Well, we have a secret about God that no one else knows. No, but that as we understand more about the word and more about God and who he really is and what has really been revealed, that just our understanding has more and more information and content. Now we have more and more wonder to to gaze upon and to behold as we consider God's love for us and see what he has said and what that means for us. This is what God wants for you and for me. He says he wants to give us a new heart, his heart. He says, let the mind of Christ be in you. And this is an amazing reality that the most remarkable and powerful person in all of history has made it his business to make us like him. Paul understood this and he wanted the Ephesians to understand it too, that they would grow in this reality and as a result operate more and more like Jesus did. A skeptic might say, knowing things about God can't solve my problems. But you know what? That's exactly what Paul is saying. John Phillips wrote this. Paul's basic answer to all of life's problems and perplexities is get to know God. In other aspects, this makes sense. For example, if you, you know, have an engine or you have an appliance or you have some system and something goes wrong with it. If you don't know anything about that system, you think, well, it goes to the junkyard. It goes to the trash heap. If the more you know about that system, the more you know about that device, the more you're able to troubleshoot and maybe think, oh, I can, I can address this issue. I know what to do. And the Lord, in a similar way, is saying, the more you understand about me, the more you understand about how to navigate life. The more you are able to be the kind of person that we read about in a book like Acts It wasn't that the Christians in Acts were a special class of people that we just don't get to be that way. God says, this is what happens when I invade a life. And this is what happens when I transform people. And this is what happens when they comprehend who I am and what I've done on their behalf. But notice that what Paul wanted most for this church was a more intimate knowledge of the revealed Christ, not a greater experience of certain manifestations. As an apostle who was laying the foundation of the church, he knew that this was what they really needed because it is through belief in the truth that we are made holy. It was a proper knowledge of the truth that would protect them from false teachings that were trying to creep into the church. It was that biblical wisdom which would drive them to consider God's amazing love and keep them from slipping out of their first love for him. Now, writing back, we might have been tempted to say, but Paul, what we want are more visible manifestations of God's power in our midst, like those unusual miracles you worked during your time here. But it is growth in the knowledge of God that solves problems and invigorates us to change the world. Because as the Bible explains, the truth sets you free. The truth sets us apart. It directs us. It leads us. It equips us for every good work. Well, then someone might say, well, then we're back to a purely intellectual religion. I just have to know things and that's all God's asking of me. Not at all. If you belong to God, then his love has been shed abroad in your heart. 
And that love starts to operate in you and through you, just as we see in the Ephesians themselves. He says, man, you're people full of faith and full of love. And now you're able to grow more and more in your understanding and therefore your effectiveness in the world. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Your translation might use the term understanding instead of heart there in verse 18. But Paul is talking about that deepest part of you, what we call the heart. Spiritual issues are always heart issues. It's the heart that God wants. It's the heart where transformation must happen. There are countless scholars out there who have filled their brains with information about Jesus of Nazareth or the text of the Bible, but they refuse to yield their hearts to him. And in the end, all that information will be useless to them unless they're willing to unclose their hearts and let Christ in as Savior and Lord. Paul writes here that his prayer is that as a church and as individuals, their core, the place from which comes thoughts and words and plans and desires and attitudes, that they would know three things. First, the hope of his calling. Calling is a word that's used a lot when we study the scriptures. If you're a Christian, you are called by God. What does that mean? Well, we can work from the end backwards. You're called to spend a glorious eternity with Christ forever and ever. You're called to rule and reign with him in his kingdom. You're called to be presented in heaven faultless as a masterpiece of grace. We're called to live out our days on this earth as active members of his body until he comes for us. We're called to live as heaven's ambassadors to a lost and dying world. We're called to serve as priests. We're called to enjoy fullness of a walk with God. And in all of this and more, we're called to reflect God, lighting up the darkness of this world. We're also called on the individual level, given a certain personal path to follow, discovering good works that God has customized for us. And all of this, in all of this, we are full of hope because in all of it, our good God is working together all things for good for us who are called. It's all full of hope. And all of these callings and all of these, you know, goals we're we're headed towards, it's full of hope. Second, Paul wants them to know the wealth of his glorious inheritance. Time fails us to even begin a passable list of what this includes. In fact, we have to start thinking not in terms of individual items that God promises us, but whole categories of what God has included in his inheritance for us. The gifts and the helps and the supplies, the limitless treasures of his grace towards his people. Our inheritance also includes privileges and duties and responsibilities and opportunities. Ultimately, our inheritance culminates in a place prepared for us, a mansion in a new city and a new heaven made for the specific purpose of our undying enjoyment of Jesus Christ forever and ever. Now, some scholars feel that this reference to inheritance is not necessarily talking about what's waiting for us, but is talking about the fact that we are Christ's inheritance in eternity. And it's true, we are. And what an amazing thing. Think of it. He who could have anything at all considers you and I the ultimate treasure. And today he's waiting with eager expectation for that moment when you are united with him in glory. If you ever paid a little bit too much for something that you bought on eBay, maybe that auction got a little bit out of hand, but you know, you just kept hitting bid. Okay, but then that notification pops up, right? You won it. When that happens, or if you just buy something online that you, you know, shelled out for, as soon as you hit, you know, buy and you pay your fee, do you then think, you know what, if it comes, whenever it comes, I don't really care. No, you care. You're like, where's my FedEx update? 
They didn't put a tracking number on there. It's stuck in Illinois. Why is it stuck in Illinois all the time? You're, you're like refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. And then those three magical words that we all want to hear every time we buy something online, out for delivery. <gasps> it's coming. <laughs> Listen, Christ paid the highest price that could possibly be paid. And you know what he got in return? Junk. Let's be real. He got the most busted up, defective stock imaginable. But in his eyes... What, how does he describe us? He says, you are the pearl of great price. He sold everything. He sold everything so that he might have you as his inheritance in glory. The third item on Paul's list here, the immeasurable greatness of his power. There's no power like God's power. It can move mountains. It can turn back time. It can raise up kingdoms. It can bring kingdoms down. It can undo any effect of any evil. It can bring the dead out of their graves. And that power is offered to us. And so in this prayer of Paul's, we catch a glimpse of the incredible package that God has put together for his people. He gives us truth to guide us, provision as we go, power to do the impossible. Okay, then how can I know the mighty strength of God that has been offered to me if that's what he wants for me? How do I know it? Should we expect to break the laws of nature at will? Should we expect to immediately topple enemy, any, every enemy that we face, escape any trouble we find ourselves in? Well, miracles like that do happen sometimes. But the Bible explains that there are many other ways by which we know the Lord's mattress, matchless strength day by day. We know it by being full of the Holy Spirit, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We know his strength by being full of joy, Nehemiah 8. We know it by being faced with impossible circumstances, Joshua 1. And God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, 2 Corinthians 12. Usually we are most interested in the mountain-shaking kind of power, right? But it is a transformed life that makes a greater difference in the world. Listen, Paul was one of the most brilliant people alive on the planet when he was doing his thing around the Gentile empire. And he worked wonders and miracles and things like that. Not at will, but as God used him. But when he described what caused people to give God glory through his ministry, here's what he said. It wasn't that he healed people. It wasn't that he was the smartest guy in the room. It was this. He who formerly persecuted the church now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God who heard that. A transformed life made the difference. Paul's prayer for these precious Christians was that they would know what was theirs to receive as children of God. And that their love and strength and wisdom would grow and grow day by day. He would wrap up his letter in chapter 6 by saying a final word, be strong in the Lord. How? Well, we have it here in verse 19. Through belief. That's what he said. His power toward us who believe. Christ has done what is necessary. He has made the way. He has invited us to take it and supplied all we need for the journey. So the question is, will we believe and obey? Will we say, yes, Lord, your wisdom, your will and not my own. Now remember, this is not just some letter from an outgoing politician, not some formality or, or courteous note. This is the path forward for God's people. This is the way to take that we might lay hold of all that Christ has won for us and promised to us. This is how we can know the power of his resurrection and be transformed from our humble condition into his glorious image. Today, if you're not a Christian... All of this that we've been talking about, all that Paul was praying about is not directed at you. You are not included in any of this right now. 
These are hopes and plans and promises made for those who are in Christ. To be in Christ, you must be born again. And if you die without being born again, you get none of this. And along the way in this life, you do not have access to the riches of God's grace towards his people. But you don't have to stay that way. And Jesus Christ doesn't want you to stay that way. Jesus really was a real person. He is a real person. He's God eternal. But he really came, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a Roman cross, was raised the third day. And he's alive right now and his desire is for you. He knows you and he loves you more than you could ever comprehend. As far as he's concerned, you are a precious jewel that he wants to retrieve from the crust of the earth. But he will not force you. The Bible says he stands at the door of your heart and knocks. And he waits for you to open up. He waits for you to surrender and accept his free offer of salvation. There's no work you need to do. There's no price that you can pay to get it. It's by grace through faith that you are saved. And the Bible explains very clearly, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from all the wrong things you've ever done. Saved from hell, adopted into the family of God, immediately being granted all the privileges and, and, and blessings of being a child of our Heavenly Father. And so today... If that describes you, we would urge you, call on the name of Jesus Christ. Tell him you believe and will go his way and begin your life of faith and start to know and then grow with all of the rest of us what is his hope and grace and strength. Let's pray.